This is 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, where we ask leading architects, urbanists, designers and thinkers to reflect on the ideas, inspirations and interests that shape their practice and their views on the present and future of architecture and cities. It's 20 questions in 20 minutes with me, Owen Hopkins. Could you tell us who you are, where you're speaking from, and what you do? I'm Canny Ash. I'm half of Ash Sackular Architects, and I am sitting at the top of um, my house in what we call the glass coffin on a, a, a reef terrace to get away from all the beeps and noise. And what we do is um, work at a range of scales, um, trying to reinvent futures for places. We're working, we've just submitted a planning application, we'll go in next week, for a big department store in Peterborough, one of the big old style, you know, Victorian department stores. And that's been pretty fascinating because it's enabled us to create a whole new block in the city. Um, but keeping the old ballroom and the old clocks and a lot of the paraphernalia of commerce on the ground floor. The other th- aspect of that is um, reuse. And we, we're interested in reusing buildings, but also in reusing street patterns, even if they've been obliterated. So some of our other projects, like one right up against the Roman wall in Colchester, is doing just that. It's like unearthed an old street going to Vineyard Gate and has reinstated an old pub there and the the fine grain that was um, alongside that. We're also actually today reworking a little bit of Norwich Town Centre where we'd done an alternative master plan to the development there around Anglia Square, what on Facebook is called Angria Square, and literally taken the street pattern and put it back and um, created a dense urban fabric where we got almost 600 homes but the developers have 1100 and a lot of car parking and so what we are trying to do today is um, find places tactically to move that up to 800 homes so a lot of the time you know we're working with the real politic of what's called placemaking sometimes but what is just trying to take transformation into a place where it can evolve naturally and iteratively and it's not finished business but it's something which um, is helping to repair places or put things back on the right track for incremental development. We often ask our contributors to go back to the beginning and ask what led you into architecture and are the reasons that drove you then are the ones that still drive you today? Architecture was very much a family affair. I'm totally inspired by um, my mum, Claire Ash, who, growing up in Baltimore and being passed around um, different relatives, became quite independent and quite um, strong-willed from an early age. And when um, she eventually found herself in Stanford and met my dad, there was a kind of partnership that evolved there where they were out for an adventure And so everything in our lives and in our house was part of this extemporizing of space and creating things. They would really just make desks that were 
heights that moved every couple of years up the wall and it was always discussed even though you know one of them was electrical engineer and the other was um in theater i think i grew up in in architecture and i feel like with my five sisters and you know lots of cousins that kind of story continues we're often talking about space we've been involved in everybody's spaces and the practice itself is an extension of that kind of family feel of experimentation and venture. Your practice is known for working very closely with the end users of projects and co-design is, is something that features regularly in your work. Um, I'm interested in how you go about this <laughs> and the implications for, for how you design and in particular, I guess, the tensions that from the outside um, appear to be kind of inherent in, in this way of working. People obviously feel very strongly and are passionate quite rightly about where they live. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the tactics and the approaches that you use to, to navigate these, these situations. It's very interesting that you have that impression because we are always um, fantastically disappointed that we don't have more contact with end users. And in fact, quite funnily, say the project I was talking about in Peterborough, we invented a whole community and made a film about a co-design event in the old department store using two and 3D animation techniques. Just off a couple of you know conversations and Facebook interchanges because we feel that Actually, we need to invent the future with people, but it's okay as a first step to just go in there and um, create a dialogue, write a script, invent some characters, and those avatars then can speak to us from the future back to now. And other people might disagree, and that's great, because we're actually giving a voice to architecture and we're giving some agency to the places we create. So, you know, we've all along been interested in the way that once we've left a project or before we've come to the project, there is there's a, a reality and a narrative that we need to sort of latch onto. We call it loitering with intent when we hang out places. And we we fess up to why we're there and what we're interested in. And we're just really wide open for anecdote and for um, reactions to things. So we would never do a kind of engagement event with empty post-it notes. We would always go in with drawings that could be cut up and, and scribbled on, but showed that we were prepared to stick our necks out, make a proposition, and therefore we, we've earned the right for an exchange. One really fun thing that happened to us recently is we're involved in this amazing project down in um, Lewis, which is 700 homes, using quite a radical language of regenerative design. And so we're going to be building 100 homes with hempcrete or hemp line. We've also, all of these houses are different shapes and the, this stuff is like porridge and you can pour it into moulds and work with semi-skilled or unskilled labour. The whole thing about prefabrication and off-site fabrication for us is a really uninteresting space. It's really emasculating local communities who need to know how to build, need to know how to maintain. It's part of our, you know, earthright, if you like, to know how to put places together. And 
the way that human nature of the developers at Lewis did it is that through a series of festivals where there was music involved, lots of long conversations because it would be over a couple of days. And we had such fun talking people through these scribbled plans that we were making and really just been with them in our backstage. You know, we had some some giant boards that we'd um, painted with gesso and scratched into and were quite tactile. But then there was, it was quite simple. There were just like big books and with some of our early sketches and plans and long benches and people spent hours sitting with us. So sometimes like, not organising things too much, I think, is a great way to connect. A number of the conversations that we've had during this series have been about the, the tools that architects use. And that's partly because this series started as, as a lockdown project when the tools uh, had, had to, to shift um, quite rapidly and quite radically. You're known, and I think you just you talk about it on your website, for, for craft and also for uh, inventive approaches to think you describe as unpromising materials. So I wanted to ask about the interactions between the craft aspect of your work and how you embrace technology, because I know that's also very much part of your work. So perhaps talk a little bit about the the interactions of those two areas. With craft, uh, the and unpromising spaces. I think that, you know, the circular economy is something which we've always been very acutely aware of and found, you know, a root inspiration in our work. So when we come to a site, I'm thinking way back now, a little bit of London Fields, which was almost not a site. It was a little boomerang shape of space. And there we kind of clung and hung over the edge of a park and created windows with some people locally who worked in arches, creating these windows, which were very much the, the product of bending a critical window shape with a pair of pliers and whatever it turned out to be. That was a space that the brickwork could accommodate. So finding ways in which stiff materials actually can start having a conversation, really enjoying, as I said, just mentioned before, this idea that we can simplify walls down to a single material, which we can pour. So we can have like a stick frame, which is the cheapest possible thing. We can put this in situ porridge like material in which does the fire, it does the insulation, it does the soundproofing, it does the weather, it takes sort of 12 and a half hours for the weather to move through or the heat to be, to move from side to side. So that really like, softens that diurnal movement so it is quite technical it is quite high tech but when you um, start understanding the porosity and the value of mycorial sort of products or or hempcrete you 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 start thinking about the little air gaps and things and and the permissible permeability of air and light through buildings which I think has some, you know, it's changed actually in our lives as architects, office buildings used to be naturally ventilated and then suddenly everything had to be sealed. And we have to get back to that a place where people can throw open windows. And in fact, um, we were leading a think tank at the London School of Architecture recently, which we called Excavating the City. And we took buildings that had just been completed like Goldman Sachs had 
European headquarters and thought, well, obviously that can't stay like that for very long, maybe a decade or two. But, you know, at some point we are as architects going to have to figure out how we are going to excavate from the top and from the bottom of buildings to bring them back into the city because it's just not going to be um, real estate that anybody wants. It's going to be not matching people's brand, but also too expensive to run. So I think a bit of kind of future technology might be looking back. And I very much like the idea that there isn't one future ahead of us, but actually we're all living in multiple futures and some of it might be behind us. We were working recently in um, actually with the, another group of young students um, from Cambridge who were doing an apprenticeship. And we took the Ramsgate port, which was built as a ferry port, about half a mile in each direction, and um, said, well, Pugin's Grange was just looking over this. What would he do? And how can we rebuild craft into our seaweed ink and into our fourth industrial revolution technologies? These things come together. They're not in any sense foreign to each other. They all involve using knowledge cleverly. When I'm researching for these interviews, the first port of call is architects' websites, and it's, it's startling. Maybe it's, maybe it's not. Maybe it's unsurprising that they all look quite similar. Um, everyone has a projects tab, but what I was quite interested in yours is, is that you have a section right next to it with sort of equal prominence, I suppose, called campaigns. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the, the broader role that campaigns or this mode of activity has within your practice it's so interesting you say about how people sort their projects because our projects are so strangely different and don't seem to fall into sectors very well so we we tried to put them under child friendly or reuse or sort of as as um, hashtags but the campaigns are something a bit different in that we've always taken the lead and um, found the funding to do them and that we, we're out being ourselves, if you like. Uh, so the Caravanserai was, in the end, a five-year project of taking an empty site that we won for something called Meanwhile London. And in it, it was like we really discovered so much about ourselves and about um, how to cook for a lot of people using very few ingredients, how to self-organize so there is within architecture there's so much we can share but there's so much that we can get back and what you do discover is that there's a stiffness and um, a an arm's length quality to architecture and planning which is really dangerous so we had one of our other campaigns is just asking the UK to look at the industrial fringes of cities and understand that they are valuable and they are not something waiting for regeneration but are um, ready-mades that you can where you can keep businesses you can be working with them you can be working with old structures but also um, networks of people and a lot of this is like we are incredibly wasteful with that and very disrespectful of people's commercial energy I mean another another place that we worked um, was actually in New Covent Garden Market where the uh, government were not really compensating traders for moving them two times, even though they might be spending a million pounds building their cold stores and things. So it happens at all different kinds of scale. But I think at the moment we're working on this amazing project in um, Chatham, 
which is a Chatham intra between Chatham and Rochester, working with Historic England, looking at how um, a place which was always outside the town walls of very much the status quo could operate. So there's a, um, a big Jewish community there with a very unusual synagogue, which was all based around trade and family links. There's a big LGBT history there. There's a lot of experimental trades and um, connections with the river that we can now maybe unearth as a new forum for the, for the kinds of adaptable neighbourhood campaigns that we were interested in. So sometimes I'm just saying, Owen, that campaigns can become, you can weave them into your paid work and people start to not to be so askance that as an architect, you're talking about a, a, like a management consultant or, you know, like an, an arts consultant. And I think we have to not be so arrogant as think we can do everything. But once we're thinking with the pulse of a place, there's no reason why we need to be only thinking physically. And I think most of the interviews you've been doing, um, people are saying things like that. I think it's a new state of mind for architects. One of the um, industrial fringe projects, I guess post, post-industrial fringe projects is very close to where I'm speaking from, the, the mailings in Usburn and Newcastle. And personally, I'm very interested just to hear you talk a little about that because you know, I've spent a fair bit of time down there and, and got a sense of, of how it works urbanistically as a, as a place to live. And I'd love to, love to hear how, how that project arose and the ideas that, that, that fed into it and also the role of uh, post-occupancy work as well because one of those campaigns that we've been talking about is the people of the mailings where you went and interviewed people and got a real I think genuine insight into what it, it's like as as a place to live and how the community there was was forming. We would have loved to have met everybody before they moved in <laughs> but we only met a few people just before planning and had a drink with them who turned out to be neighbours in the end. But I think that the people of the mailings is interesting in that we just spent two days on that, at least two days up there and maybe a couple more weeks um, editing and putting a, a book and a website together. But I think sometimes post-occupancy is seen as this big dreary chore. And actually it's such a privilege. You do get a, a chance like we did that time to stop the pigeons climbing underneath the decking and roosting because some mesh wasn't put in. You know, sometimes you can be useful. And so it's a fair exchange. But also I find it hugely confidence building um, for us to be able to hear people say, I love living next to the Jacobs, the metal crushing plant. I love those timber deliveries in the morning. It makes me feel energized. I love the ear splitting music on Sundays you know, from the time bar, I think unless you have that evidence, you can't talk that to other people. Everybody assumes that people want to live in very dreary, silent places, you know, with a bit of bird tweeting. I think obviously not for everyone, but there is a place for lots of different tribes. And the interesting thing about the mailings is that it isn't like one group of people. They're all different ages. And there's now been about six children born there. It's a place that um, where the shops were not occupied, but now suddenly they are, and it's okay that it maybe it waited for people to find the right 
bakery or the right ice cream you know shop so a lot of what excites me about the pandemic and about maybe it's you know going down in flames with brexit although i don't think that's tragic is that lots of old science around property is now old money you know you can't really a retail consultant what do they have to offer really because they've all they're all about you know footfall and assuming that people behave in a certain way and behavior has changed so that allows people to like us or like you or anybody to start um creating a different kind of fiction which doesn't need to be a science it can be something well that worked you know so maybe that can work without without uh, too much of a only taking the spreadsheet and the square meters and the distance from something else into into account where's the energy there so i need to draw things to a close a little bit and i have a, a i guess a, a very big question to to kind of round up with but maybe it does sort of help sort of tie together some of the the things we've been discussing but what makes a good neighborhood or a good place to live and and what is what is the architect's role in creating or helping to create that i think i'd say unfinished business you know if you as an architect you can leave some strands open that would be the the most positive thing you could do for a neighborhood so that it can gradually find itself and that would be building on the random qualities of the space and the people there or random them probably not random but the other thing is just to take a view that maybe a lot of what's there is there already i don't mean to say that we don't want to build we love building we love transformations but a lot of tinkering is useful we did a project recently with um, a community in deptford who wanted to 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 build in bricks and mortar a museum to slavery there because it's next to the king's docks and it made a lot of sense and then we said well what about if a, a whole range of people in the community become guides for this and that they're speaking from their personal experience and they are they're given the tools really good tools with 5G and technology to create networks of visitors around them using iPhones and using easy devices that are, that are plug and played and put in trees and things to create basically performance those those people might be a 14 year old just you know earning some money or a 90 year old and by them becoming involved in telling their story of the neighborhood you start to understand that a museum is is needs to be a place now of many many voices and that there isn't one truth and that everybody can tell their truth and it doesn't matter if that's distorted in the view of somebody else because over the whole layering of of voices you 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 get to a, a collective truth and we're now working with the Somali museum people uh, on a brief for a townhouse in Cable Street which was you know since Somali sailors and traders have been here you know for a couple of centuries and that's not known really so i think there's a lot to uncover and discover as architects creating briefs and finding cracks in the system where you know store new stories can come to light and people can be shaken out of complacency and start to demand more kenny ash thank you very much thanks a lot
You've been listening to 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Stay tuned for more episodes, write a review or give us a rating, and be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform.